Well, I could open your Bibles with me this morning once again to Genesis. As we have begun to move into our study of the doctrines, the truths, the teachings that are in the book of Genesis, these first three chapters, it has been my thesis, what I am holding out before you, that every important truth in the Bible has its root in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That every significant teaching, that every important uh, thing for us to understand in our walk with God actually is buried somewhere, either more obviously or less so, in these first three chapters of Genesis, and that everything that is important can be found there. And so, we might ask the question, what about the deeper life? Now, when I say the deeper life, that may be a new term to some of you. It may not only be a new term, it may be a confusing term, because you may have heard of the higher life, or the victorious life, or the overcoming life, or the spirit-filled life. There's all kinds of names that we give to this life. But the thing that I want us to be clear about this morning is, is that we're talking about a quality of Christian living that goes beyond the experience that many Christians have of struggling with sin, battling constant defeat, laboring to somehow please God, getting worn out, having no joy, experiencing frustration, living on a treadmill of somehow hoping that they can make God happy by the things that they do, and yet spending most of their time asking Him to uh, forgive them for the things they wish they hadn't done. That's the experience that many Christians have. And the Bible in the New Testament very clearly offers to us another kind of Christian life. It offers a life where there is the power of the Holy Spirit to grow in Jesus Christ and begin to live victoriously with respect to the daily battle of temptation. There is a life in Christ that promises His power to be effective with eternal significance for the work that is accomplished through us. There is a place of rest in Jesus Christ that affords us a life not of drudgery and toil and frustrating labor, but of blessed encouragement and blessing of the presence of God. And people have called this kind of life all kinds of things. The higher life, the deeper life, the victorious life, the over coming life, as I mentioned. There's all kinds of terms. But we're basically talking about a quality of life that transcends the average experience and brings us to a place of victory and rest in Jesus Christ. 
And the question becomes, is this life hinted at or described or, or found within the first three chapters of Genesis? And of course you know the answer to that or I wouldn't be preaching a sermon on it. But my conviction is that it is there. And that as we go to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that we can find the elements of the deeper life. I'm going to call it the deeper life because I just like that. But, uh, but you know what I mean. Put, put your own term there. That we can find the elements of the deeper life, in fact, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And I think there are three things in, in these three chapters that speak to us of this life. The first one is the Sabbath rest of God. The second one is daily communion with the living Christ. And the third one is the reference to the tree of life. And I want to go to Genesis and kind of unpack these a little bit for you as we kind of dive in and see what on earth do these three things have to tell us about the New Testament offer of the Spirit-controlled, Spirit-filled, deeper life in Jesus Christ. First of all, look in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. The Scripture says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their host. And by the seventh day God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Now, when we read this, if you were paying attention when we were studying the character of God, something becomes immediately apparent to you, and that is that God does not need to rest. He does not need to rest because he does not expend energy that needs to be replenished. You know, if you put a battery in your flashlight and you turn it on, you let it burn for a while. Eventually, the battery is going to go wear down. And if you leave it on long enough, it's going to burn out. The batteries are going to get exhausted. They're not a renewable supply. You've either got to plug it into a charger or you've got to buy new batteries. And you know how your flashlight gets about 15 minutes before it's done. It's just kind of a little glow in the reflector there in the front. It doesn't do much for us. That's an exhaustible supply of energy. You can extrapolate that up to something much bigger and more complex, and that's you and me. We do not have an inexhaustible supply. If we don't rest, if we don't eat, if we don't refresh ourselves, if we don't take time to rejuvenate, we are going to wear out and become exhausted. And eventually, we're going to burn dimly like that flashlight. And if you push it too far, you may go out. (laughs) Because we do not have an inexhaustible supply. But by definition, God is the inexhaustible supply. He has unlimited power. He is infinite in His person. He is eternal in His being. There is nothing He needs to sustain Himself. He does not have to be renewed, replenished, or recharged. God is inexhaustible. 
Therefore, by definition, he does not need to rest. So immediately we kind of have to scratch our head and say, wait a minute. He rested on the seventh day. Why did he do so? Because it was not because he needed it. Another thing that kind of stands out about this seventh day is that there's no mention of evening and morning. If you look at the other days, there's a mention of that. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. But when we come to the seventh day, it just says, and God finished his work. And he rested on the seventh day. And there's no mention of evening or morning. It almost suggests to us that this is an open-ended time frame. Now, when God had finished his work on the sixth day and he rested on the seventh, the scripture says, God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because he rested from all of his work. The word sanctified, this is one of those Christian hot words that we always get wrong. You know, you hear sanctification, and if anybody even knows what the term means anymore, you know, you, you think holiness. This, this, is, this is holiness. This is, this is being good. This is rule keeping. You know, but sanctification in its root has nothing to do with holiness. Sanctification has to do with being set apart. It has to do with being isolated and focused upon and and made special. And when we are sanctified in Jesus Christ, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're regenerated, born again, the Holy Spirit comes into us. The Bible says that we are set apart unto holiness. And that from that moment, we belong to God. We are special. We are called saints. From day one. And it has nothing to do with our behavior. It has to do with the fact that we are special. We belong to God. We are His possession. And so, when God sanctified the seventh day, it simply means that He set it apart. He put brackets around it. He underscored it. He highlighted it. He made it a special day. You know, there's something interesting about our week. And here's what it is. Our year is determined by the Earth's travel around the sun. It takes approximately 365 days, give or take a few hours, for the Earth to make a trip around the sun. The year is established by the movement of the solar system. And the seasons are set because of the angle of the axis of the rotation of the earth as it moves around the sun. The earth keeps the same angle of rotation. And so we have, when we're facing the sun more directly, we have summertime. And when we're not so direct, we have wintertime. And the seasons are established by the movement in the solar system. The other thing is, is that the day, the 24-hour day, give or take a minute or so, the 24-hour day is based on the rotation of the earth around its axis. And that also is kind of set by the, the 
universal clock. But the week doesn't have any relationship to any solar celestial event. The week is, in fact, entirely arbitrary. You could have a 20-day week, a 13-day week, a 43-day week. You could have any length week you wanted to divide into 365. There's no good reason to have the weeks and the months that we do, except that God decreed them for a purpose. They have no bearing whatsoever on the rotation of the axis of the earth or around the sun. They have to do simply with the fact that in six days God made the universe, and on the seventh day he said, this is the day of rest. And he set it apart and he made it holy. And this declaration of the seventh day was made all the way back here in creation. It predated the Ten Commandments by at least a couple of millennia. It was established before any other principle of God was laid down for us. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it set apart was a principle that was actually built in to the creative week from the very beginning. So, what is it about the Sabbath day, the seventh day, that makes it special? Well, Jesus tells us in Mark 2.27 that man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Do you remember that? Jesus had been doing some things on the Sabbath that the Jews didn't think he ought to be doing. And they said, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Because we have all these rules. You're not following the rules. And Jesus came out very clearly and said, look, let me set the record straight here. Now, this is the authority. This is God speaking. Let me set the record straight. You guys have added, I'm embellishing this a little bit. (laughs) You guys have added a bunch of rules to the Sabbath that my father never gave you. You put all this stuff in there, and you think the whole thing is about the Sabbath. He says, it's not about the Sabbath. It's about you. God made the Sabbath for you. He did not make you for the Sabbath. This is your blessing. This is your benefit. God's plan was to give us a time that was set apart for us. And I I want you to think with me about the sequence of events here and how this happened. You guys are sitting all wrong this morning. If you think I'm wandering more, it's because I can't see all of your eyes at the same time. You're you're just sitting all wrong. And I have to look at the whites of your eyes occasionally. Not that I can see them on the back row because I don't have my glasses on. but, But I know you're back there. Think about the sixth day. Somewhere during the sixth day after God had made the animals... He created Adam, and I don't know, maybe it was right right after lunch, that he brought the animals in front of Adam to kind of take a look, and Adam, you know, saw all these pairs, and, you know, he's looking around saying, okay, something's missing. God began to stir awakenings in his own mind, and then uh, toward later in the afternoon or whenever God made Eve and put them in this garden, And now they're kind of standing together. 
as they're coming to the end of the sixth day. Now, you know in Scripture that the order of the day begins at nightfall, right? If you ever tried to order something from Adorama or B&H Photo, you know that they close at sundown on Friday evening. And they stay closed for the Sabbath. And that, that they print the time. The time the sun drops off the horizon is the minute they're closed. They're, they're, they're operated and controlled by, by Jewish people. And they take that very seriously. So I just thought I'd throw that in. But in the scripture, the, the day begins at night. At nightfall. So here they are at the end of the sixth day. And if you'll allow me a little bit of sanctified imagination, here's kind of what I envision. Adam and Eve are standing there hand in hand. Wow, it's been quite a day. Adam has seen his first woman. (laughs) And now they're standing together, holding hands. The sun is going down, the beautiful colors of the sunset. They're looking out over this gorgeous garden. I see the birds and the, the animals and the luscious fruit and the rich green foliage. It's just amazing. They're standing there and God is saying to them, all of this I've made for you. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. Enjoy this blessing. I've made this for you. And the sun drops beyond the horizon and nightfall comes and Adam and Eve go to sleep. The first thing they did, the first full day of their life, was go to sleep. It's the beginning of the seventh day. And it's nightfall. And when they woke up the next morning... They woke up in the middle of the seventh day rest of God. Do you catch the significance of that? Their first full day on the planet began with a good night's sleep and awakening into the rest of God. And furthermore we recognize that God doesn't need to rest. So I want you to take this imagination just a little bit further and think with me, because I think I have good scriptural reason for saying this. You ever take a day off? You ever take a day off to be with friend or family? I'm going to take the day off and spend it with you. How does that, doesn't it make you feel special when somebody takes a day off to spend with you? God took the day off. To spend with them. Day number one, God is off work. He's going to spend the day with them. Isn't that precious? Isn't that neat? They were born into the rest of God, and God took the day off to have that special day with them. God sanctified that day. It was not the absence of activity. To, to be in the rest of God does not mean you're not doing anything. But what it does mean is, you're not toiling and laboring and sweating and, and, and toughing it out. 
The toilsome labor came as a consequence of sin. But in the garden, it was only productive blessing. As they spent the day with God, and I do think it was a 24-hour day, but there's the symbolism here of the unending state of living in the Sabbath rest of God. And when we begin to go into the New Testament and study these themes, we recognize that a message of the deeper life is that we were designed to live in the rest of God. What is it that defines that? Well, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 tells us, and I'm just going to do some quoting for you, but you can go home and read this as part of your devotions this week. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews says, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day after that, saying, Today, if you hear His voice, do not fail to enter because of unbelief. Because they heard the word that was spoken to them, speaking of the Israelites in the wilderness. They heard the word that was spoken to them, and they did not believe it. And they did not enter into the land of Canaan, but at Kadesh Barnea, through unbelief, they they rebelled and balled, and they backed away. And if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of a day of another day after that. And therefore, the scripture says, and is removed to Hebrews chapter four, verse nine, the scripture says, therefore, be diligent that you enter the rest of God. For the one who has entered his rest has also ceased from his labor as God did from his. That holds forth to us the hope that the Sabbath rest of God is an available condition for us right now. If you hear the word today of faith, be diligent that you enter that rest. And what is it that characterizes that rest? The one who has entered into his rest has ceased from his labor, as God also did from his. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that there is a place of abiding rest in Jesus Christ where it is not toilsome effort, trying to to deal with sin but losing the battle, trying to make God happy by doing these programs and these witnessing schemes and these church events and all of this stuff and trying to keep the rules and Working, working, working to be good Christians and wearing ourselves out. But there is a place in the presence of God that we can enter by faith and cease from our human effort and enjoy the blessing of His work through us. If we compare this with Ephesians 2.10, We're told that we were created in Christ Jesus from the foundation of the world for good works that we should walk in them. You've heard me preach this kind of message about a hundred different ways, I'm sure. But friends, you were designed by God to walk in a certain sequence of events and work that would have eternal significance. You know, people out there, they want to make their lives count. 
They want to know that they that their life makes a difference, that they have they have some impact in this world. You were designed by God to make a difference, an eternal difference. And the difference that you were designed to make, the work that you were hardwired to do, was actually appointed for you before the foundation of the world. And we're told in Ephesians 2.10, so that you can walk in it. Friends, God, it's not a cliche. God has a plan for your life. He has a purpose. He made you for a purpose. He wired you a certain way. He designed you with aptitudes. He has given you spiritual gifts. And from the very foundation, He has made you to live out a purpose that is most fulfilling. And when you are in the center of His will, operating in His strength, living by His power, there is rest. In Jesus, there is peace in Him. There is a sense of His abundance because He's doing the work. And we are enjoying the blessing. Are you living today in the Sabbath rest of God? Not only is there dimension of the proactive accomplishment of eternally significant events, But the Sabbath rest of God is a place where there is victory over sin. Are you fighting a losing battle? Or have you found the power of the Holy Spirit? God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. But with every temptation, He will make a way of escape that you can endure it. But that way is always looking up to Jesus. Oh God, I can't, but you are able. We have no strength. Sin will defeat us every time. But there is power in the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. There is a place of Sabbath rest. Are you living today in the Sabbath rest of God? Are you enjoying the rest of God? Are you sanctifying one day in seven for communion with God? Have you awakened in His presence to spend a day with Him? The next thing that we find, and it's kind of an oblique approach in verse 8 of chapter 3. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The implication is that this was not a first-time experience. Else, how would they have known that was the Lord God walking? They heard something that was familiar to them. They heard the sound of the Lord walking. And because they had sinned, they ran from Him. They hid. But this does not detract from the fact that they knew what the sound of His walking was like. Now, 
Do you suppose that they sense the presence of God in the garden all day long? I rather suspect they did. I think that they could talk to him anytime they wanted to. I think he was right, readily accessible. I think that they were aware of him being there, that they were in partnership and there was no sin even to block the way. But we nonetheless find that there was a time during the day when there was some special kind of fellowship, some special kind of communion. In the cool of the day, you know, the Hebrew for cool of the day is actually the breeze of the day. Oh, where have we heard that before? The wind of God. The Holy Spirit throughout Scripture is symbolized in many cases as the wind. Jesus said when a person's born again, it's like the wind. And when the disciples were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came like a mighty rushing wind. The breath of God, the ruach of God was the wind of the cool of the day. And furthermore, they heard the sound of the Lord walking. Now, think with me a minute. We've said God does not have a body, but they heard Him walking. How, how, how do you hear someone walking if they don't have feet? I mean, you, you, you hear footsteps. I personally think that God manifested Himself to them during a particular time of the day in the pre-incarnate person of Jesus Christ. You know how Abram had the conversation and the Lord showed up with an angel and had this talk? You know how Joshua saw the captain of the Lord's host? Theologians, because they need big words, call these Christophanies. That's what makes them theologians. But for all the rest of us, It's just Christ appearing in the Old Testament. Before He was born into this world through Mary, He just showed up taking human form so that we could see Him. Here we have, isn't this the Trinity? God showing up in the person of Christ in the wind of the day and spending time with them. I imagine that they took a walk together. There was a threesome for a part of the day. And what do you suppose... They did during their walk. A little more imagination here for a bit. I think they kind of walked down the path, you know, and it's like maybe God said, Hey, did you have you really looked at that flower? See, that's what he would say to me, because I'm kind of into that. But he might say something else to you. <laughs> did you see that bird? Look at that. Isn't that amazing? What do you think of me making that thing? You know, they had, and maybe they talked about their plans. What are we going to do? How are we going to do tomorrow? What, what, what are we? It's probably toward evening. Another day is about to start. It's a cool time of the day. So what are we going to do tomorrow when we wake up? How are we going to spend that day together? Friends, if you want to know the will of God for your life, throw away that book that says how to know the will of God, throw that one away. And even if I gave it to you. (laughs) And just get alone with God and spend some time.
time. He wants to tell you. He wants to tell you. And when they sinned, they ran from that encounter. Don't miss that. But God wants to spend time with you. Notice when they sinned, He came looking for them. If you are His and you have a relationship with Him, He is beckoning you to that time. Come walk with me. Come talk with me. Let's go over your day. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about what I'm doing in your life. Let's, let's just talk. And in the garden, even though the presence of God was always there, Adam and Eve had a time during the day when they specifically met with God. You know, we could discount that as too fanciful of an imagination, but it's true in the life of Jesus Christ. Do you suppose there was ever a time when Jesus was out of fellowship? I mean, really. I never do anything on my own initiative. I only do what I see the Father doing. Well, how how do you do that all day long? You're in fellowship. But in the life of Christ, and I've given you a couple of Scripture passages here, Luke 22, 39, Mark 1, 35, In the life of Christ, the Scripture speaks of Jesus, for example, going out to the Mount of Olives as was His custom. I think whenever He was in the region of Jerusalem, He went to the Mount, He liked that place. He went there to pray. That was not new to Him. He didn't just show up there the night of the arrest. That was His prayer place. Other times in the Scripture we read, He got up while it was still dark and went out to a place to pray, to meet with His Father. I've always found it significant that on the day that He selected the twelve, you know, there were a lot of people following Him. But there was a day when He picked out twelve of them and said, You, Matthew, and and uh, Bartholomew, and... Whoever, you, follow me. You're going to be my twelve disciples. That day was after he had spent a night in prayer. The whole night. And he picked those twelve. Including Judas. Because that was in the plan of God. Jesus set the pattern. And the example for us. That even though we are to pray without ceasing, even though we are to be in constant touch with our Father, even though we are to be in that place where we hear His voice and follow His commands, it is important for us to spend time with Him. In the cool of the day, whatever that is for you, to spend time with Him. And get alone in His presence. And then, finally, and this may not be finally, there may be other things here that I've missed, but the tree of life is also in the Garden of Eden. And the tree of life is kind of interesting. If you look in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, it says, And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing 
to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then you find that God gave to them of every tree to eat except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They were not prohibited from eating from the tree of life. It was available to them for food. I'm going to suggest to you that they had been regularly eating from the tree of life. Some people think, because of the way the wording is at the end of chapter 3, that there was a choice. Tree of knowledge, tree of life. One day you have to pick one or the other, and, and when you do, then the other one's going to be, you know, that, that's the test. And people believe that because God blocked their path back to the tree of life, that that, that means that if they, they had not eaten of the tree of life, because if they did, they'd live forever. But I don't really find that in Scripture. What I do find in Scripture is that God says, after they had eaten of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil, He said, I am going to block the way to the tree of life, lest you stretch forth your hand and eat of it now and live forever. But there was no implication, really, that they had not been eating of it on a daily basis. It's interesting that the tree of life is only found in three books of the Bible. Genesis, Revelation, and Proverbs. There are several references in Proverbs. I've given them to you in impossibly small type. But they're there nonetheless. And in those references in Proverbs, the tree of life is a metaphor for everything that is healing and and life-giving and satisfying. But we do not encounter it again until the book of Revelation. And in Revelation, we're introduced once again to the tree of life. The church at Ephesus is told that they can have access to the tree of life as they return to their first love. And then in chapter 22, there are references to the tree of life in the heavenly Jerusalem. The water that flows from the throne of God and the tree of life is on either side of it. Now that's interesting because how can a tree be on both sides of the river? But when you read about the tree of life on both sides of the river, it takes us back to the vision of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter chapter 47 when he saw the vision of the heavenly temple. And in the heavenly temple, the water was flowing out from under it toward the east. And the tree of life was on either side. It's not called the tree of life, but it was called trees on either side of the stream were healing for the nations. But we find that the tree of life has that quality in the book of Revelation. Its leaves are healing for the nations. And so we have the the representation that the water that is flowing from the throne of God is bounded by the tree of life that offers the healing and the life and the sustenance for eternity. And to be separated from the tree of life is to be cut off from the life of God. Read that in Revelation 22 and study it. See if all that I've told you is not just true. So here we have the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And what does it represent? Well, who is the tree of life, really? Now, I'm not taking away from the fact that there was a real tree in the Garden. But the real tree of life is Jesus Christ. I want to submit to you one of my theories. You can think about it. See if you agree with me or not. I can't prove it. I just suspect it's true. 
Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine. What did he mean by that? I am the true vine. Normally we read that passage and we say, oh, Jesus is using a metaphor. He's saying he's like a vine. I don't think so. I think he's saying the vine is like me. It's not a metaphor. He is the vine. And by the way, I made one down here that you can see so you get the connection. I am the vine. This is the symbol in your vineyard. It has roots. It has a a, a shoot, a main branch. It moves out. There are branches coming off of it and fruit is born. And that's who I am. I am the root. I am the source. I am the vine. You are the branches. And out of you come fruit from me. And he is the tree of life. Eat my flesh. The leaves of it were healing for the nation. Drink my blood. John chapter 6. We are made partakers of the divine nature. We shared communion together earlier, and we took one of these crackers, and we took one of these cups. And I want to tell you something. This is a matzah cracker that you can buy at Jewel. And this is grape juice. I think it's Welch's that you can buy at Jewel. And this is just bread and juice. And if you're hungry, this is not going to help you very much. And when you do eat this and drink this, it's only going to add a few calories and a few vitamins, and that's it. There's nothing mystical about this bread and this juice. It doesn't turn into something different. It stays bread and juice. But when you come to the Lord's table by faith, and you take in your hands the bread that by faith is for you the body of Jesus Christ, and the cup that by faith is His cleansing blood, and by faith you receive His life and His forgiveness, this becomes life for you. Not these two items, but the faith that you invest in the work of Jesus Christ that they represent. And I suspect that the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden was really the presence of Jesus Christ in that tree. And as they went to take of it, they were taking of His life by faith that they might live forever. Because we don't have life in ourselves. They didn't have life in themselves. They had life in Christ. And they were taking of Him. Peter says we're partakers of the divine nature. They were taking of Him by faith. But when they had sinned and been separated in fellowship from God and driven out of the garden... He was not accessible to them until there was a cleansing and a covering. And that had to wait for Calvary. And they could not live forever in their present state. That would have been horrible. 
But that tree of life represented something. God's way. Or your own way. The tree of knowledge. Trust me with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Or go figure it out for yourself. And be your own God. These are your choices. And here is the tree of life for you. As long as you eat of it, you will live in me. When you choose the other path, you will be cut off from me. I believe there was a real tree there. I think they ate of its fruit on a regular basis. And friends, Jesus in John chapter 6 invites us to eat of him. We know that's symbolic. We know he means come feast in my presence. Take my life for yourself. Drink of me. Eat of me. Be refreshed by me. I am the source of life. And in me you have eternal life. I'm so encouraged. I'm so encouraged by John chapter 11. I stood with Jim and the children around the bedside of Mary's lifeless body yesterday. And I am so glad that he that believes in me will never die. To know that she was not there but in his presence and was not dead. I don't know how you can face life or death without him. He is the source of life. And when Jesus said those harsh words, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, which to the Jews just was like, they hated that. And they all went away. Jesus turned to his disciples and said, are you going to? And they said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life eternal. You are the source. So let me ask you this morning, are you abiding in the Sabbath rest of God? Are you walking with Him in the cool of the day? Are you partaking regularly of His life? This is the message of the deeper life. It's not any more complicated or simplified than that. Rest in Him by faith. Abide in Him by faith. Partake of Him by faith. Spend time with Him by faith. Because in Him we live and move and have our being. How are you doing? It's not a legalistic question. I'm not asking you if you're having a daily quiet time. I'm not asking you how many chapters in the Bible you're reading. I'm asking you if you're in love with Jesus and spending time with Him. Are you resting in the Lord? Father, we all understand the tyranny of the urgent. I've been living in the midst of it. This 
message is for me. But I felt compelled to share it because I suspect I'm not the only one overwhelmed by the busyness of life. And you give us a very clear call. And we have to embrace this by faith. We don't know how we can make life work if we take even more time out. But you tell us that when we do, you make it work. Thank you that there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Thank you that there is a place of communion with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can partake of the tree of life even today. By taking Jesus for our life. Lead us to that place. Quiet streams and pastures green. Amen.